Thank you. The gentlelady yields back. The chair now recognizes the gentleman from Oregon. Mr. Bench, you're recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Madam Secretary, for being here. Uh, I was, uh, I'm happy to see you here today, but I didn't see anyone from your agency present at our water subcommittee hearing in Fresno just eight days ago, and I was surprised at that given the situation we face in California, the immense amount of water, uh, some say as much as five and a half, uh, five and a half feet of, of water content across the entire Sierra, uh, ready to rush down the hill, hills and, and flood Sacramento and, and the Central Valley. So I, I was very surprised not to see you there or to see someone there. Uh, we, the, the, the chair of, of our Natural Resource Committee, uh, Mr. Western was there because he realizes, as did the other congressmen uh, attending, uh, just how incredibly uh, dangerous the situation is for all of California and, and, and also the opportunity that's being squandered as we fail to recognize the need for more storage. And to that end, uh, I want to, uh, I, 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 was, I just want to make clear for the record, we were disappointed in not seeing your agency there. So uh, now I understand Camille. I think Camille's doing, uh, is, uh, Director Tootin's doing a great job uh, given the many, many challenges she faces. Wouldn't have expected her to be there, but there could have been somebody from your department. Um, let, me, let me shift away from that and go to the dam removal on the Klamath. Uh, the, of course, the Klamath, the upper Klamath is in, in my district. It apparently is, uh, the, the removal of four dams on that river is proceeding, it, that has started. The, the concerns are many uh, regarding the removal of those four dams. In fact, I think uh, the Corps of Engineers and also FERC told me in a round table about a year ago when I asked them a series of very pointed questions about their plan that they really weren't sure of the answers because they hadn't done this in 20 years. That's not a good answer. And the, uh, the but here's some specific questions. The first, the Kino Dam, is above the rest of the dams. It's not being taken out, but there's about $100 million of deferred maintenance on that dam. Who's going to be responsible for that, that, that bill once, uh, as I understand it, the, the uh, certificate uh, of uh, the license is going to be handed over to the Bureau of Rec? And I'm just wondering if Pacific Corps, who owns the project now, is going to be responsible for that $100 million repair bill that that dam carries with it. If not, who? Congressman, thank you for the question. And of course, just so I can tell you, we, we really try to meet all requests and we appreciate being invited to the round table or the field hearing. Um, so um, you're talking about the repayment of costs. Is that what you're, I'm sorry. So the dam is worn out and yes, it needs about repair. 80, between 80 and $100 million worth of repairs. Before the Bureau accepts the handoff of the ownership of that project, I hope the Bureau is going to protect all of we taxpayers and the, 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 the water users below that dam from the deferred maintenance costs of Thank the you. dam. So I'm asking, who's going to pay that 80, between 80 and $100 million bill? Thank you for the question. Um, the department is committed that the water users covered by the 2016 Klamath Power and Facilities Agreement uh, will not bear the costs associated with operating and maintaining the Kino facility. Um, we remain committed to that. We're happy to stay in touch with you and your office. Uh, I'm sorry, say, say again, who, you, who, do you, who did you just say is not going to be paying the costs? It's, um, I, am in, I am informed that the um, water users covered by the 2016 agreement will not bear the costs Good. associated 
With it, and, and that's that's fine. I'm happy to hear that. I'm I'm happy to hear that. The the second question is: Will the U.S. government have to pay that eighty to a hundred million dollars? I am. Uh, I apologize, Mr. Bentz. We will. I will get back with you with all of those details. If that's okay, we'll contact your office shortly. Right. Um, so after um, and. I very much want to have that contact in writing so I can share it with everybody else because there's huge concern that that Pacific Core and the state of Oregon and the state of California are trying to offload that incredible, incredibly large obligation on the taxpayers. I just don't think that's right. And so, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. My, just a few seconds I have left. Um, it seems to me there's a, a $162 million that is being spent on fixing the river. Can you tell us how the Bureau is involved in the expenditure of that $162 million that uh, Senator Merkley uh, obtained for restoration purposes? Um, do you, do you, I apologize, Big Tommy. Can no, no problem at all. Um, so we're extremely appreciative of the funding for, uh, for restoration of a system that um, uh, needs it, and uh, those investments are long overdue. Uh, and so Bureau of Reclamation is developing uh, the spend plan and the plans uh, for deploying those dollars as we speak. Thank you. Yield back. Gentleman yields back. The chair recognizes the gentleman from Rhode Island, Mr. Magaziner. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Secretary, for your work and for joining us today. Uh, in Rhode Island, we know that a swift transition to clean energy is possible, that it can save costs for ratepayers on their electric bills, reduce emissions, and create jobs. My district is home to the Block Island Wind Farm, the first offshore wind farm in North America. And we are also home to the planned Revolution Wind Farm currently under construction. When complete, Revolution Wind will provide nearly 1.6 million megawatt hours of clean energy into our grid each year. That is enough electricity to meet roughly a quarter of Rhode Island's total electric demand statewide. The project will generate clean power for more than 350,000 homes and displace more than 1 million metric tons of carbon pollution. And importantly, will save Rhode Islanders roughly $100 million on their electric bills compared to the prevailing rate for electricity. Uh, building off of the success, Rhode Island is currently pursuing an additional procurement for offshore wind that will more than double this capacity and put our state on the path to 100% renewable energy by the end of this decade. Rhode Island stands as proof that clean energy development can be done in a thoughtful way that incorporates community input, protects industry, and safeguards local wildlife. During each review process, uh, Rhode Island and federal agencies held dozens of meetings, Q&A sessions, community seminars, public comment periods to give a voice to residents and stakeholders. And the Inflation Reduction Act uh, will enable more offshore wind and clean energy projects to come online and get us closer to the Biden administration's goal of deploying 30 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2030, which will save Americans money on their electric bills, reduce our dependence on foreign energy, put us on the path to energy independence, create 100,000 plus good clean energy jobs, and reduce carbon dioxide emissions by more than 70 million metric tons. 
Madam Secretary, can you just expand at a high level on what role you see offshore wind playing in achieving American in energy independence, and what goals do you have for offshore wind development nationally uh, in the coming years? Thank you so much for the question and everything you said. Yes, we're on board with that, and we really want to make sure that we're um, reaching the goals that the president has set, 30 uh, gigawatts of offshore wind power by 2030. Um, I feel that we can reach that goal, and um, we can do that because we are uh, ensuring that we're taking the communities whose um, you know, who are man who will be the the um, the workforce behind these efforts uh, with us. So um, I I can say that everything you said, yes, we we agree with you. We want to see this come to fruition, uh, namely um, the way we can lower energy costs for Americans will mean a tremendous amount as a single mom. I understand what that means. So um, I, you know, 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030, that's a goal we have. We'd love to surpass that and um, we'll work hard to get there. Thank you. Uh, the administration budget includes funding to uh, support effective environmental reviews and accelerate permitting for offshore wind. Can you talk about how important this funding would be in the timely processing of applications while also maintaining high standards for community input and, and environmental review? Thank you very much, Congressman. And uh, yes, the funding for agency staff would ensure that permitting work can be done correctly and efficiently. Um, it, people actually work on these things, and so um, there is a process to that. Um, the lack of resources causes significant problems. One, it can lead to slower times. Uh, two, if the process is not done correctly, then the permits can be at risk to challenges and other problems. So we want to make sure that things are done right the first time. Uh, it's true across the board, including for clean energy. And so um, we feel very committed to doing things in the right manner. If we have the staff, uh, that means we have the opportunity to to move those permits forward. Thank you. And finally, uh, the House Republican Freedom Caucus has proposed to reduce the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management budget to zero dollars. Can you just briefly describe the impact that that would have on permitting and environmental reviews uh, across the board? Oh, it, would be it would be devastating. And currently, um, uh, the clean energy industry is, um, they're committed to this, um, to these goals, and um, they have a lot invested in the future of our country. So I feel we have a commitment to all of the workers who are uh, building these offshore wind turbines, who are, uh, you know, doing everything there is involved with that. And so we're, it would be devastating. Thank you, Secretary. I yield back. Gentlemen, as time's expired, the chair now recognizes gentlelady from Puerto Rico, Ms. Gonzalez Colon. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and happy to see you here, uh, Madam Secretary, and thank you for visiting the island uh, during last November, specifically the San Juan National Park, historic park. Um, I got so many questions. Some of them I will submit it for the record. I know you've been here for a long time, uh, but there are many other questions that uh, I will uh, try to focus. The first one is that 
In both fiscal years 2020, 2022 and 2023, at my request, uh, Congress had provided the U.S. Geological Survey uh, $500,000 increase to update the combined national seismic hazard model for Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, which has been last published in 2003. And as you know, the national seismic hazard model for the 48 states is regularly updated every six years. So it's been quite a long time that the territories has not been updated. Um, uh, I know that the agency is also working updating the models for Alaska and Hawaii. Uh, and these models describe the likelihood of a potential impacts of earthquakes and serve as the basis for seismic provisions in building, uh, in building, building codes. And we were just hit in 2019 by another uh, earthquakes in the south. So according to information previously shared uh, by the Geological Survey with our office, maintaining the funding level through the fiscal year 2024 would allow them to deliver uh, a draft Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands seismic hazard map in 2024 and, and, and a final one, updated model in 2025. However, I'm concerned that the department's fiscal year 2024 budget delay the release of the updated seismic hazard model for the two territories, U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, until the end of 2026. So my question will be why the department is proposing $500,000 reduction and delaying the release of the updated Puerto Rico and U.S. Virgin Islands maps uh, to the end of 2026. Congresswoman, um I apologize. I am going to check on that with my staff and get back with you, if that's okay, uh, soon after this hearing. Um, I know that's a concern for you, and I just want to make sure that we have um, all of the... Appreciate it. Yes, of course. Uh, appreciate it. I, I think, it, I mean, what other additional resources you may need uh, or require to achieve this, uh, let us know. But the information we got from the agencies was that, was that $500,000 was enough. Uh, and we appropriated the funds for this. And now seeing the reduction in the budget plan, it's, it's like not going uh, accordingly to what we propose. Um, the, the next question I, I may have is that um, we were talking a few minutes ago about uh, wind, uh, wind leasing and uh, conducting offshore wind. Um, and during the last Congress, we amended the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act to provide you um, uh, authority to conduct offshore wind leasing in federal waters of the U.S. territories. And according to the budget request, the department will be uh, will begin moving forward with lease, pl lease planning processes in Puerto Rico in the current fiscal year. Can you provide us uh, at least uh, more information about what will it consist or uh, what sort of work will be carried out this year? Congresswoman, thank you very much for the question. Uh, the department in BOEM uh, plan to initiate the area identification process by forming an intergovernmental Renewable Energy Task Force, um, which will help ensure early and frequent communication uh, throughout the renewable energy leasing process. Uh, we expect to formally propose the formation of the new Puerto Rico Task Force very soon, and we look forward to working with your office um, and the government of Puerto Rico and its diverse stakeholders on this issue. Uh, moving forward. So we'll absolutely be in touch about this and appreciate you I, asking I, I the question. I appreciate that. The first idea of this legislation came from 
former member of Congress, Natalie Bordalo uh, from Guam, and we got the bill, it was approved, and finally we got it passed uh, in, in a sort of amendment uh, in the Continental Shelf Lands Act that was approved uh, during the last year. So, I mean, this is something that we're pushing for. Uh, mm -hmm. So my office will be more than eager to help uh, with any stakeholders on the island and the energy authorities as well. Um, I will submit some uh, questions uh, for the record, but my last question uh, today is that we, we saw that the national, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service administered, administered, administered five uh, national wildlife refugees on the island. Uh, we're talking about more than 22,000 acres. Uh, however, um, I'm extremely concerned that uh, staffing shortages in, in those areas, we used to have 28 employees 10 years ago, and now you just got 10. Um, if there's a reason for that, uh, it's, it's, it's complicated to hire in those areas. Uh, what is the department uh, currently doing to address staffing needs in, in those uh, national wildlife refugees in Puerto Rico? Congresswoman, staffing is uh, important to us everywhere, and certainly in um, in Puerto Rico. Um, just to let you know that um, sites in Puerto Rico will receive funding from the Great American Outdoors mm -hmm. Act. Mm -hmm. uh, the San Juan National Historic Site is estimated to receive nearly $42 million for repair of the walls, and I saw those walls, and they're I remember. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so I, I just know that um, we, we care about the wildlife refuges and the national park sites in Puerto Rico as much as we care about them anywhere. And so we'll absolutely keep you updated and happy to work with you moving forward to make sure that we have the folks there um, who need to get the work done. Thank you, Madam Secretary. And I will submit the rest of the questions for the record. Thank you so Good much. to see you again. Nice to see I, you too. Okay. I yield back. General ladies, time's expired. The chair now recruit, uh, recognizes uh, Mr. Gallego, recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and welcome, Madam Secretary. Uh, earlier this year, California and other six states in the Colorado River Basin, including Arizona, submitted two separate proposals to address water shortages in the basin. Based on those proposals, the Bureau of Reclamation recently offered three alternatives. Do nothing and risk Lake Mead and Lake Powell reaching Deadpool. Number two, proportionally distribute water restrictions during times of water shortages or place the cuts almost entirely on Arizona, our communities, and our economy. Since it's pretty obvious which of those I'd prefer, and which would objectively make the most sense if we're having a serious discussion on water needs in the year 2023 instead of 1923, I'd like to ask instead about the review process itself. What were some of the most impactful, alarming, or surprising findings during the department's recent review process and what did this review process teach us about long-term solutions in the region? Congressman, uh, thank you so much for the question. Uh, I have my Deputy Secretary Baudreau with me, who um, I tasked with working on Colorado River issues. If it's okay, I'll have him Absolutely. answer the yep. question. Yeah. No, thank you, uh, Representative Gallego, and it was great to see you in Phoenix you. a couple weeks ago, speaking specifically on the investments we're making uh, for sustainability of the Colorado River system. Uh, I think the most um, shocking um, set of uh, facts that are presented in the um, in the environmental review, the supplemental environmental review, is you know the depletion of the reservoir. 
Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the visuals are there uh, if you go out to uh, Hoover Dam or Lake Mead and see the bathtub rings. Uh, but what is really astounding is the hydrological projections going forward. Uh, and uh, that was the purpose of presenting the no action alternative, where uh, in a time of climate change, uh, the most severe impacts uh, to the river system are from doing nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is uh, a profound statement about uh, the challenges we face in light of uh, changing climate and the sustained drought. Thank you. Last Congress, Democrats provided significant investments for drought mitigation and climate resilience, including $8.3 billion in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and $4 billion in the Infl Inflation Reduction Act. Can you briefly share how the department has implemented this funding to address drought mitigation efforts? Secretary Holland, if you want to start with that one. Thank you so much for the question, Congressman. And um, so the bill is allowing the department to allocate resources needed to help build a path to a more resilient future, of course. Um, and that is important because climate change is not going away. Um, Reclamation has allocated approximately 1.7 billion in BIL funds to projects across the West for water conservation, water recycling, more storage, rehabilitation of infrastructure. Um, to ensure long-term sustainability uh, in the face of this cha changing climate. Um, this includes 82 new water smart projects in the Colorado River Basin. Uh, that's for 284 million of the bill funding. It also includes longer-term drought resilience projects like 210 million for water storage projects across the West. Thank you, Secretary. And something that I uh, truly cherish was the day you and I held a hearing uh, together on missing and murdered indigenous women uh, and the first ever uh, in Congress, and it was uh, groundbreaking. So I'd like to ask you about the, that important issue. As we have heard in the committee many times, American Indian and Alaska Native persons experience violence at a grossly disproportionate rate in this country. These realities are even worse for indigenous women and girls, which is why we have worked together in the past, past legislation addressing this crisis of violence, including my proposal to combat family violence and to provide resources to tribal law enforcement. However, According to the, department, the department's estimates, House Republicans' budget cap proposal will result in a loss of over 1,500 tribal law enforcement personnel. Mm -hmm. Of course, this will not improve safety on tribal lands. Secretary Holland, considering this, how will the House Republicans' cuts to tribal safety, the, tri the tribal public safety funding, impact the department's current work combating this crisis? Congressman, thank you so much for your support on this issue and I always appreciate you standing up for tribal communities and specifically for um, this terrible violence against Indian people. Um, this pro proposal would have, of course, real and damaging impacts on our country. Uh, if spending for defense programs kept level, then non-defense programs would face steep cuts of 22% or more. That's $3.7 billion for DOI. Tribal communities have historically been underfunded. Uh, law enforcement is one of their top priorities. Every time they call us, it's about law enforcement. We know how important that is to them. Um, but uh, if, they're, if they're continually underfunded, uh, they cannot um, sustain these deep reductions um, that would have terrible results for tribal public safety, justice, law enforcement, and um, those are the highest priorities for our tribes. And as you said, losing 1,500 law enforcement personnel in Indian country would be devastating across the country. 
Thank you, Secretary. I yield back, and it's good to see you. Gentlemen, as time has expired, the chair now recognizes the gentlelady from Wyoming. Ms. Hageman, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Madam Secretary, have there been any new coal leases or lease modifications approved either for thermal or met coal under your leadership at the Department of Interior? Thank you, Congresswoman. I, I know that the, this um, uh, met coal question came up earlier. Uh, we're happy to have the BLM uh, or someone from that um, bureau be in touch with you about that. I couldn't say specifically which projects have been approved or permitted and which haven't. Well, are there any outstanding coal lease or lease modification applications currently pending before the Department of Interior? Congresswoman, I'm more than happy to make sure that we can um, uh, get that list to you if, uh, if that's okay with you. But the BLM is committed uh, to the district court that reinstated the coal leasing program moratorium that it will initiate the remedial environmental analysis shortly. So we are so working on this issue. You don't have an answer for my question as you sit here today? Uh, Congresswoman, we'll be happy to get back with you about the number okay. of permits, if that's what you're asking. Um, do you know how long the applications that are pending before the, the DOI have been pending, and what is the reason for the delay? Congresswoman, I know that um, our staff works on permitting um, every day. It's hard to say uh, why, why some take longer than others. However, um, I do want to let you know that um, the BLM has, um, um, has made me aware of um, the importance of the project that you were talking about. Okay. Uh, Madam Secretary, do you believe energy poverty is a good thing? I don't know the term, ma'am. You've never heard of the phrase energy poverty? I have not heard of that term, but I... Uh, it's probably pretty self-explanatory, though, don't you think? Well, I think what we're really trying to do with our clean energy goals is make energy more affordable for okay, every but, single American. So I'd like you to answer my question, which is, do you believe energy poverty is a good thing? In other words, that people going into poverty are being unable to afford food or medicine or things like that because of the rising cost of energy. Do you think that's a good thing? Congresswoman, I understand the challenges that many Americans face. I raised my child as a single mom okay. and had to decide whether I could pay the rent or my student loans or so you, even so my you, gas bill. So I understand that. It's yes, very so, difficult. Yes, so you agree that energy poverty is not a good thing. Is that right? Um, I, th I want to uh, say that uh, we are working very hard to make energy more efficient and more affordable, which well, is why we're moving forward on our clean energy but, goals. But that isn't the case. Coal is an affordable energy, isn't it? It has been for decades. I, I know that um, our country uh, relied on coal for a very long time, and we're very grateful for so many of the workforce that uh, powered our nation for a right. very and, long time. Right, and coal time. is an affordable energy, isn't it? Ma'am, I, I want to say that um, President Biden believes in energy independence for our country, and I believe that using uh, different energy sources around the country will help communities everywhere and Including will coal. keep energy more affordable. Including coal and oil and gas, correct? 
Uh, Congresswoman, we are in a transition currently to a clean energy future, and I believe very strongly that we will get there and energy will be more affordable. So for then every energy American. poverty is a policy of this administration from what I can tell from your answers. Congresswoman, we are working very hard to make sure that all Americans can um, access affordable energy, and that's one of the reasons why we are working hard but on your, this But transition. your policies do the exact opposite, which increase the cost of energy, correct? Uh, Congresswoman, uh, President Biden truly understands the challenge of working people, and we want to make okay. sure that energy can be affordable for every American. Uh, Madam Secretary, do you know what the recovery criteria is for the greater Yellowstone grizzly bear? I beg your pardon? Do you know what the recovery criteria is for the greater Yellowstone grizzly bear? Uh, what I know is that... Um, the grizzly bear is, although it's maybe thriving in some places, it is not thriving in other places. Okay, do you know the recovery criteria for the greater Yellowstone grizzly bear? I couldn't, I'd be happy to get back with you with that specific answer, ma'am. Well, it's roughly six to 700 is the recovery criteria. Do you know how many bears are currently living in the greater Yellowstone recovery area? Congresswoman, I don't have the number of grizzly bears in front of me at the moment. But okay, I'm did happy you, to get were, were you aware then that there are over 1,100 grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone area? I uh, will, uh, I appreciate you sharing that information with me. Okay, thank you. I yield back. Gentlelady's time's expired. The uh, chair recognizes the gentlelady from Oregon. Ms. Hoyle, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chair, um, and uh, thank you, Secretary Holland, um, for testifying before the committee today. I represent Oregon's 4th Congressional District in Southwest Oregon, mm -hmm. and the Bureau of Land Management manages over 800,000 acres of timberland in my district, mm -hmm. where we're really good at growing trees. The majority of the forest lands in my district are made up of the Oregon and California Railroad revested lands, or the ONC lands, and these lands are unique their history, their location, purpose, are far different than any place else in the country. The checkerboard pattern of private, industrial, state, tribal, and federal forests makes it complicated to manage and even more complicated to protect, especially in this era of climate-driven megafires that threaten communities, wildlife, ecosystems, and rural economies. We lost in 2020 1.1 million acres and four thousand homes in Oregon, and we can't have that uh, happen. We'd like to not have that not happen again. Uh, because of the unique pattern of ownership, the state of Oregon for years has cooperated with the BLM on a unique fire protection agreement called the Western Oregon Operating Plan. I think you're familiar with it. The BLM, the state, timber industry partners jointly pay the shared fire protection agreement for the ONC lands, and the Oregon Department of Forestry uses these funds as uh, wildland firefighting agencies to protect all the lands so that we're not having different people doing different things. Um, and they're renowned for their high quality and effective initial attack that reduces the risk of catastrophic wildfires, both with their permanent staff when needed and contracting with local high quality private wildland firefighting companies that are familiar with 
how to fight fires in the Northwest and on the ONC. It, it works well, and it keeps 95% of all fires from growing over 100 acres. Um, protects a lot of constituents like myself who live in the wildland urban interface. Uh, and, you know, again, it's a, it, it is a very good thing. Um, our national forests are faced with an incredible challenge. We have an aging wildfire fighting workforce and insufficient resources to meet the needs of the catastrophic wildfire season. The issue is we are nickel and diming and arguing um, over continuing uh, this contracting with the Oregon Department of Forestry and the BLM because we have a limited amount of money that we put up front for wildland, uh, for, for forest fire prevention and also initial attack. But once it's a mega fire, we have unlimited money. So because of an accounting error where we're arguing about the color of money, you know, we're spending a lot of money and we're losing millions of acres of, of forest land. Um, so uh, I uh, would like, I know that um, Congress provided significant wildfire-related funding to the BLM in the infrastructure law, but if additional funding up front would make it easier for the BLM to remain a full partner in the Western Oregon operating plan, I, I would love to fight with you for that investment. It is smarter, better use of taxpayer dollars. And I understand you've committed to Senator Merkley that the BLM will remain in the Western Oregon operating plan. I thank you for that commitment. It is very important. Um, can you also commit today to working on a long-term solution to address the challenges both in funding um, and working through anything that would prevent or hinder the BLM's continued participation in the Western Oregon Operating Plan? Uh, Congresswoman, yes, we're, we're absolutely committed to working with the state of Oregon on a long-term basis. Um, I was really happy to have the chance to be in Oregon with Senator Merkley recently. Um, and uh, of course, seeing that beautiful country, we're, we're saddened by the wildfires that happened, um, uh, I believe it was last summer. So we, as I mentioned earlier, uh, these are not fire seasons any longer, they're fire years, and all of us have to be diligent. So yes, working together is the best solution, and we'll certainly um, uh, be committed to that. The Thank you, and that's important because we are hearing that federal officials at the BLM are looking and would like to exit the Western Oregon operating plan or change it significantly, in part because of Oregon's operating procedures. And I've run an agency, and I know bureaucracies can be difficult, and we are committed to working from Oregon to make sure that we have better communication, but the key is um, the funding and, you know, the fact of the matter is it's more expensive to fight fires in the ONC lands, in the wetter forests, so we cannot compare how much it costs to fight a fire in Arizona to what it costs to fight fires in the ONC lands. And I think we have to really take a look at these things differently because the next time that we have really bad wildfires, it's not just gonna be 4,000 homes, it will be one of our urban areas and it will make Paradise California fire look like a campfire. People will die. And we really, really need, I, I, I really want your commitment to make sure that not only that you'll work on it, but we, we, we will put our money where we need to, funding it up front, and also making sure that we're addressing this beautiful forest land the way that we absolutely need to. 
Congresswoman, um, I feel confident that BLM will find an agreement with the state and continue to work together to ensure that all parties are fully participating in the agreement. So we're happy to stay in touch with your office. Please reach out anytime, and um, we, we want to make sure this is successful. Great. The lady's time has expired. I ask unanimous consent to enter into the record the Department of the Interior Department of the Interior's budget information for the past two fiscal years for the Office of Wildland Fire. Uh, in fact, this year the Democrat administration reduced discretionary funding for the wildland fire management at DOI by $365 million compared to last year, and that's uh, a decrease from $1 billion, $29 million in 2022 to $664 million in 2023, and I would like to point out that uh, Republican uh, proposals to go back to 2022 actual spending levels would increase uh, DOI funding by $365 million for wildland fire over uh, what's currently in place this year. And uh, just let me say that again, that's reduced funding for wildland fire by $365 million. And for those keeping track, that's about the same amount of funding the department sent to parks in Nancy Pelosi's district. Um, I'd like to enter this to correct the record from what my colleagues on the other side of the aisle said earlier about Republicans reducing funding for the Office of Wildland Fire. Without objection, so ordered. Now I recognize the gentleman from Texas. Mr. Hunt, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, and thank you so much, Madam Secretary, for being here. Thank you for your time. Re really, really appreciate it. Um, wind and solar are booming. And I know that because I'm from Texas. And when I drive across my great state, uh, I could see the industry growing at a pretty rapid pace. Uh, in, in your written statement, you state that uh, your budget builds in on the, trim, quote, tremendous growth accomplished by renewable energy programs last year. My question for you is, uh, should growth in the oil and gas industries keep pace with the growth in the wind and solar industry? Congressman, I think the idea is to move our clean energy transition forward. Um, in a way that um, it can help a lot of Americans to have, um, have more affordable energy costs. But I think the, the idea of a transition is to move to a clean energy economy, and, um, and that way we don't have so much dependence on a finite resource such as Oil. Okay. So, so do you think the workers in the oil and gas industry deserve the same level of certainty in the future as workers in the wind and solar uh, industries? Uh, I want to uh, assure you that um, we, are, uh, we are always in communication with every, every piece of um, activity on our public lands. We are in touch with the folks whose, whose industries they affect. Well, the Biden administration says that uh, we, we will be moved off of gas-powered government vehicles uh, by the year 2035. So I would argue that that's the direct opposite of, of, of job certainty. But as an Apache helicopter pilot and somebody that's spent a lot of time in the military, I, I don't think that's, that's, that's possible. And, and I'm going to tell you why. I'm not a big fan of the word transition. 
mm-hmm. at all, to be honest with you. Okay. The reason why I'm not a big fan of the word transition is because, actually, according to Bill Gates, if every single American drove an EV tomorrow, we would only reduce the demand of a barrel of oil by 8%, which means that the microphone that I'm speaking in, the glasses on your face, the clothes on your back, literally everything that we use is a byproduct of our industry. And, and you, made a, you made a statement as well. You said as we move forward, we will continue to have oil and gas continue to be part of the mix. What do you mean by being part of the mix? And for how much time do you think do you think we're going to be in part of the mix? Because I think it's going to be for a very long time, at least in my lifetime. It, it's, of course, it's hard for me to predict how long into the future that uh, fossil fuels will be a part of our energy mix. But as I mentioned, the idea is to move more to a clean energy future. Um, that provides a lot of jobs for folks. Um, and we will continue to make sure that we can ha- have jobs for folks in that industry. So, so, so do you think that the federal government should do more to regulate the oil and gas industry? I'm not quite sure I understand what you mean by that, but we, uh, we have certain obligations to... Well, I guess what I'm asking, that- do you think we should stifle, stifle, as in the federal government reach into the private sector to stifle the growth of one industry in order to promote another industry? So for our part at the Department of the Interior, mm-hmm. we manage our public lands. So we only have um, we only have management authority over our public lands, not on any state or private right. land. Right. So, so, so you- it's up to those folks what they do. Uh, but for our part, we we have to manage our public lands uh, according to the law and and with respect to the the best management practices because they belong to all the Americans. Yes, ma'am. So would you would you support a an, an equitable approach to the growth of wind and solar potentially on federal lands and also allowing us to continue to drill for natural gas and oil on federal lands at it at an equal place pace without the government infringing upon that sectors um well with respect to um gas you know leasing gas oil permits um those move forward we we follow the law uh, somebody submits a permit to drill, we, in good faith, move that permit forward in a process. So um, we aren't working to stifle anyone. We're working very hard to make okay. sure that, um, that everybody uh, is treated fairly. Okay. And lastly, I'm going to shift gears here real quick. I'll have a few more seconds here. In your, in your written testimony, you said the interior continues to work across the department to expand equity, diversity, and inclusion. What exactly does that mean? It means that we want our department to look like America. We want everyone to have an opportunity um, to uh, be a part of our really wonderful department that cares for our public lands and our cultural heritage. Let me add one more thing and then I will close on this, ma'am. The word that I think is missing from this statement though is also qualified, qualified. Um, when I flew on a plane from Houston here today, I did not peek my head in the cockpit and say, I hope every pilot met their diversity and inclusion goals. What I really wanted to make sure is that the people that were in front of that plane could fly it so we didn't crash it. So I understand the idea of being more inclusive. I understand the idea of being more diverse. I've been black for my entire life, but I also want to make sure that we also talk about qual- the most qualified person gets the job. And with that, I yield back my time, sir. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. 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 Thank you
appears my we're turn. down to the final two, and I hope we can maintain decorum and order. Well, unless you lose control, Mr. Westerman, I'm doing okay right now. I, I recognize uh, you for five minutes. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Madam Secretary. You, you confirm to me uh, your, uh, your class and uh, your demeanor in this whole hearing. I appreciate it very much, and, and the committee members appreciate it. Uh, let me, you know, last week, uh, Madam Secretary, I stood alongside uh, tribal representatives of the Grand Canyon Tribal Coalition as they renewed a long-standing campaign to permanently protect their Grand Canyon homelands. In a nod to this administration's demonstrated commitment to elevating indigenous voices in public land management, the tribe called on President Biden to use his authority under the Antiquities Act to designate more than one million acres in, in the area as a national monument. Uh, the tribes have served as the principal protectors, guardians, stewards of the Grand Canyon, their real and, and spiritual home since this time. And they simply want these special and sacred lands to have a permanent protections they deserve. So, while you're here with us today, I'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to the lands that make up the tribe's proposed national monument at the Grand Canyon so you can be there, experience the area that you know well uh, yourself, and hear firsthand from the tribes why the protection of these lands is so important to them, to Arizona, and in fact, uh, to the nation and to the millions of visitors all over the globe who wish to preserve this international icon for generations to come. So we'll extend that invitation, Madam Secretary, and we hope that you will consider it and accept it. So uh, I leave that with you. Thank you very much, um, Ranking Member. Uh, I would want nothing more than to travel to the Grand Canyon. I know it's a sacred place uh, for many tribes, and um, I appreciate it being so important to you as well. So, yes, we would love to visit, and we'll work on that. And uh, I know you're not promoting a policy of energy poverty for, for the people of this nation. Uh, and, uh, and while the word transition might be uncomfortable for some, it is a reality. And as we transition... Uh, into clean, renewable, for the sake of the planet, and the sake of your, the lands you protect and the waters you protect, uh, the sooner the better. And, and, and in terms of the poverty question, you know, it's interesting that the, the budget that is being proposed or talked about or teased out by the Republican majority and the speaker uh, talks about... Uh, people not having food stamps and nutrition. It talks about uh, the elderly and disabled not having, uh, having the support that they need to keep their heating and cooling on in, 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 in this climate-changed weather of ours. It talks about reducing the number of kids and, 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 and families and single parents uh, on Medicaid and other programs that provide health care, uh, rental assistance, uh, attention to the homeless. So if we're talking about poverty, there is, uh, there is going to be ample opportunity for the Republican majority to uh, show their concern about helping those 
that are not in a position, unfortunately, to be helped and that the rest of us have a responsibility to them. I have questions about permitting and permitting reform and for a uh, moment I ask unanimous consent to put uh, uh, a study in that it's the, the policies of reform and change in gas and oil uh, is not jump the price of gas on the pump. It's, a, it's become methodological now, and but it's not fact. Uh, the other issue is- uh, Of objection. So noted, sir, but I'm not the chairman. You can object. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I just want, I'm going to send those uh, those requests because I think that the, the permitting issue is a ruse to try to weaken other kinds of laws, uh, whether it be NEPA, endangered species, bedrock environmental laws. It's, it's, it's thinly veiled. That's the excuse. Child labor's the excuse. Well, uh, Republican governors across this country are promoting uh, the reduction in child labor laws in their own states. So I leave you with that, and my sincere thank yous for the work that you're doing, that your staff is doing. I yield back to the chairman, sir. Gentleman yields back. Um, I have a couple of items to submit to the record here. The first is the uh, section 702. 203 <clears throat> labeled the Presidio Trust. This is from the draft IRA bill that was uh, heard in this committee on September 2021. And it does have language in it that says, in addition to the amounts otherwise available, there is appropriated to the Presidio Trust for fiscal year 2022. Out of any money in the Treasury not otherwise appropriated, $200 million to remain available until September 30th, 2026. And Again, this was the draft bill that was heard in this committee. It was highly objected to by our side of the aisle for a special, um, not even a, uh, uh, an earmark for Speaker Pelosi, but just um, a, a direct expenditure for the Presidio. So we objected to that, and also I'm submitting to the record uh, Public Law 117-169 from August 16, 2022, also known as the IRA Act. This is the law that was passed. It says uh, under Section 50224 under the National Park System Deferred Maintenance, uh, in addition to the amounts otherwise available, there is appropriated to the Secretary for fiscal year 2022 out of any money in the Treasury not otherwise appropriated, $200 million to remain available through September 30th, 2026 to carry out priority deferred maintenance projects through direct expenditures or transfers within the boundaries of the national park system. That, that is the law. Without objection, uh, it's so ordered. Uh, so, Secretary Holland, I, I now recognize myself for five minutes for questions. Uh, it's clear in the law that it was not the intent of Congress for $200 million to go to Presidio Park. Actually, uh, would you agree or disagree that by the fact that it was $200 million in the hearing and the final law uh, for Presidio and in the final law, it specifically did not say Presidio, uh, how would you say that uh, has in congressional intent for $200 million to go to Presidio Park. Congressman, um, first I would just like to say that um, we're all very proud to have the Presidio as a public land that belongs to all Americans. So, But um, do you believe that's 
intent or, or not intent? Uh, it is my understanding that we merely implemented the congressional intent on the deferred maintenance provision in the Inflation Reduction Act with respect uh, to so the Presidio. The law specifically does not say Presidio. You've testified earlier that you or no one in your staff spoke to uh, former Speaker Pelosi's office. So how did you determine that um, it was congressional intent to send all $200 million of deferred maintenance to Presidio Park. I mean, the perception is that this was a payoff to Speaker Pelosi for getting the IRA passed, that this is an issue she pushed and continued to push and got it stuck into the IRA, and then her friends in the administration turned around and sent that money to Presidio, even though there was high objection from Congress for putting that money specifically there. So how do you dispel that perception? Chairman, I want to assure you that we follow the law on every single thing that we do. Um, I cannot speak to the specifics of the situation at this time. Um, there, were two, there were $200 million specifically sent to your uh, agency for maintenance backlog, and all of it went to the Presidio Park, which was not the intent of, of Congress. Uh, I want to move... Uh, move on. Um, you've talked about a climate crisis, and there's also a perception that, um, that this administration has put an all-out attack on domestic energy. I think the actions of this administration and your department have, would substantiate that, but you've presented a different picture here today. You've said that under your leadership, uh, there's more production of oil and gas on federal lands than ever before. Is, is that correct? Yes, Chairman. So would you, do you take credit for that or do you think that's because of actions that have happened uh, before? Or does the Biden administration take credit for that? Well, I mean, um, I don't think we go to work every day thinking about who's going to get credit for what. We're just doing our jobs. So and how, when permits how much come of, through, we... How much of that production would you say has happened on permits issued under this administration? Well, we have um, certainly approved many applications for permits to drill. Um, that's our job. We're following the law with respect to that. If land is leased and folks have rights to the land and they submit a permit, an application for a permit to so drill, you, we have to process it. Do you think it. there's a, an energy crisis in our country? You've talked about a climate crisis. Do you think there's an energy crisis? Um, Chairman, I know that President Biden is committed to energy independence for our country. That's I've, the I've reason why that. we are going gangbusters on our clean energy uh, transition. That, that is a, those are viable sources of energy that we are working to so on, uh, lift up. At the, at the end of March, we passed H.R. Uh, 1, the Lower Energy Cost Act. Um, mm -hmm. We had a press conference uh, in the middle of the afternoon by that uh, later in the afternoon, uh, the country's focus was shifted towards the Manhattan DA and under the radar the next day, OPEC uh, announced a supply cut on oil. And uh, today, gasoline prices are 6.8% higher than they were at the end of March uh, because OPEC has control of the dial on the price at the gas pump. Uh, do you think if, if the US, are you committed to producing more energy in the U.S. of all the above energy? Uh, and and the, the world didn't get the memo on the transition. This is global consumption of energy by fuel source. 
the transition that gets talked about here is, is what you, I can hardly see from where I'm sitting, wind and solar. Uh, from, from here to here is all carbon emitting sources. That's what's happening in the, on the world market today. Uh, you've talked about removing dams in Mr. Benz's district. The largest component of non-carbon emitting energy is hydropower. Yet this administration gives lip service, tries to create the perception that it's about all of the above energy, that we're drilling more, producing more energy on federal lands than ever before. Yet uh, I think we're ignoring the facts and there's, there's not an all out effort uh, to increase all forms of energy. I know uh, 30 gigawatts of wind power by 2030. Guess what? China built 38 gigawatts of coal-powered plants last year, and they'll build that many again this year. So that's a tiny drop in the bucket uh, to uh, get to the point that we need to go. So, or, or to get to. So my final question is: Are you committed to an all-of-the-above energy strategy uh, that lowers cost uh, for Americans? Are you committed to reducing the permitting? Um, uh, debacle that keeps not just traditional energy projects from happening, but from uh, new energy sources such as wind and solar. Uh, can we work together to make those things happen? Congressman, we're always, Chairman, pardon me. We're always willing to work with you in your office. We, our doors open. Please reach out to us when you would like. Um, we are committed to um, energy independence for our country. We believe very strongly that uh, for our part in the Department of the Interior, moving our clean energy sources forward are, are, are one component of, of, our, of our vast energy uh, production resources. Um, and of course, um, we're willing to work with, with anyone to make sure that our country um, is set for the future. Um, I really do have to say that um, all of this is because climate change is the crisis of our lifetime. We have an obligation to future generations to make sure that we have a planet for them to live on. And that's why I'm here, and that's why I'm working incredibly hard to make sure that we can realize that transition, that we can have diff differing energy sources. We can't uh, continue to um, be a one industry uh, country. We ha we're we expanding. We're proud of the expansions we're making. We're going to continue to work very hard. And uh, certainly all the career staff who are working um, diligently to move any and all permits forward, they'll continue with your help um, on our budget. And we appreciate very much you listening to me today as well. And thank you, Secretary. And I'll just close by saying that I think we're all working towards the most affordable, reliable, and cleanest energy for the future, but we have to use common sense in that, and we can't uh, ignore the data, ignore the facts, and, and ignore the logic, uh, and get blinded by uh, an emotional argument um, that is very real, but we also need to be realistic in uh, the, the policies that we make and the way that those policies are executed. Uh, again, thank you. Uh, for your uh, valuable testimony, and thank you uh, to the members who uh, participated today. There may be, may be some additional questions by members of the committee, 
and we'll ask you to respond to those in writing. Under committee rule three, members of the committee must submit questions to the committee clerk by 5 p.m. Eastern on April 22nd. The hearing record will be held open for 10 business days for these responses. If there is no further business, without objection, the committee stands adjourned. <laughs>